Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. We're in the season of Lent. How many of you were able to catch one of the... uh uh, Ash Wednesday services online. Wasn't that well done? Uh, I'm so, so proud of our team, and it was a fantastic Ash Wednesday service, which means we are, we are in to Lent. This is the journey that's going to take us to uh, Easter. And um, that's begun. And uh, during this season, I want to ask a question. I want to ask, what does this mean? I want us to have a Lenten look at the cross. Now, I do, I've done different things with preaching on the season of Lent, during the season of Lent for, I don't know, years and years now. And very often what I'll do is, is try, to, try to get us all to sort of journey together with Jesus towards Jerusalem. So we're, we're moving week by week closer and closer to the cross. I, that's not what we're going to do. What we're going to do this year is we're going to come right here. And in one sense, the six Sundays of Lent are all going to be Good Friday. Uh, we're, 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 we're going past everything else because I just feel like something very powerful can happen if we would come and sit at the cross for six Sundays and ask what does this mean now a little more than eight years ago the end of 2012 Perry and I decided that we would walk the Camino de Santiago this 500-mile pilgrim path across northern Spain. Then we waited four years to do it. So we'd made the decision and then waited four years. And then 2016 came around and we walked it for the first time. Now, I know I tell a lot of stories from the Camino, and you'll just have to forgive me. <laughs> I can't help it. Because, quite honestly, it changed my life. And I hear, I hear Perry on the front row going, mm-hmm. It did. It changed our lives. Um, a, lot of, a lot of things happened. Um, some pains were healed. Some burdens were laid at the foot of a cross and were never retrieved again. Uh, it was, and in many ways I can think of my life as pre and post Camino. I mean, that's one major um, dividing line because it just did so much for me. That first day, our first day, the first day we're on the Camino was September 14, 2016. That's Holy Cross Day in the church calendar. And it's a long day from Saint-Jean-Pierre de Perro, France, up over the Pyrenees, over into Ronson's Valles, Spain, where we stay in an ancient monastery that has huge dormitories. For all the pilgrims. And uh, having completed that first, it's probably the hardest day of the whole thing. The first day is the hardest. 
because you've got to cross these mountains. And I went to visit the chapel. I was tired, but I went to the chapel, a 13th century chapel, and, and I went in, and it was kind of dark, and my eyes were becoming accustomed to the light, and I noticed the crucifix. And I just looked at it. You know, I've been in a religious tradition that we don't have a lot of crucifixes. Cross, maybe, but not a lot of crucifixes. But I was looking at this portrayal of Jesus Christ crucified. And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me. I mean, the Holy Spirit knew I was setting out on this long journey that was going to take us 40 days. We didn't know how long it was going to take. It ended up taking that long. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I don't say that lightly. And gave me instructions. The Spirit said, okay, on this Camino, enter every church you can. And there's just lots. I mean, in one sense, the, the path, the way developed by going from church to church to church to church. Because it's a religious pilgrimage. So you pass lots of churches. And we did. We would try to go in. Some of them were open. Some of them weren't. The Spirit said, enter every church you can. Pay attention to the crucifix because there's always going to be one. Ask this question, what does this mean? And Don't be too quick to give an answer. And that's what I did. Um, I took some pictures. I'll show you. Just, these are just, just, just a few. I just picked like seven of them. But we saw them every day. Different kinds of crucifixes. And, and I would, if, if it was in the middle of the day when we're hiking, I might just, you know, go in there and, and pay attention to the crucifix for, you know, a minute or two. If it's at the end of the day where we were staying, I might find a church and go in and sit for an hour or half an hour. Asking this question, what does this mean? So that first communion was many things, but it certainly was a communion of crucifixes. It was a 40-day, 500-mile meditation on Christ crucified. Looking at an image. And then, see, the thing about a Camino is, is it's, it's long, it's slow, it's simple. It's long, it's 500 miles. It's slow, we never moved any faster than foot speed. Never rode in a taxi, never, we just, it's long, it's slow, and it's simple. I mean, your life is reduced to basically... Move from this town to this town. Walk to it. And then rest and do it again tomorrow. And so it affords an opportunity, if you choose, to go deep. To think. You know, Perry and I, were walking together. We're talking, but, you know, we don't talk all the time. And so there's long stretches where I'm just, what does this mean? That, that God came among us. As Jesus of Nazareth. And that happens. What does this mean? In one sense these sermons were born. Four or five years ago. Four and a half years ago. On the Camino de Santiago. And so I guess during Lent. I'm like Paul. I have decided to know nothing among you. Except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we look at Christ crucified and we ask, what does this mean? It means, it means 
everything that is most important of all. If this is God, what it means must be the most important thing. And what it means for Christ to be crucified cannot, it cannot be summed up in a single idea. If you're going to attempt to answer the question, what does this mean? And I, I, on that Camino, I really did try to obey the Spirit. And I just tried to mostly just contemplate on it and not assign meaning. The, the meaning became later. It's like when I got done. After 40 days, it was, okay, now, try to answer what does this mean. And it doesn't mean just one thing. So if you're going to dabble in atonement theories... Please have a plurality of them. Because you cannot reduce it to one thing. What does it mean? It means many things. I'll give you a dozen. It's the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. It's the infinite shaming of the principalities and powers. It's the point from which Satan is driven out of the world. It's the death by which Christ conquers death. It's the abolition of war and violence. It's the supreme demonstration of God's love. It's the refounding of the world around an axis of love. It's the enduring model of discipleship. It's the beauty that saves the world. It's the coronation of the world's true king. It's the eternal moment of forgiveness. And that's not exhaustive. I gave you a dozen. I don't know how many more. I mean, this this is the greatest work of theology. What does this mean? And we're not close to being done with that project. But it's not just a project for theologians to engage in. It's for every Christian to ask, what does it mean that God became human and was nailed to a tree? What people probably most associate, though, with the cross is the forgiveness of sins. I think most Christians, if asked, what does this mean, their first instinct will be to talk about forgiveness in some way. That Christ died for our sins. That's not all it means, and we're going we're to see that. So some of these things I just mentioned, I just gave you a dozen meanings. We're going to look at several of them over the next few weeks during our Lenten journey. But um, forgiveness is not all that the cross is about, but it's a good place to start. And so, what does this mean? Well, among everything else, it's the eternal moment of forgiveness. When Andre Montaigne painted his crucifixion in 1459 in Verona, Italy, now it hangs in the Louvre in Paris. What what is he saying? What does it mean? Well, among Everything else that it means, and it's many things, 
It's the eternal moment of forgiveness. It's the moment that the sin of the world is forgiven. You, what, what are you seeing here? You're seeing many things. We'll, but today we'll say this. You are seeing the eternal moment. I want to use the word eternal. The eternal moment, which sounds like contradiction, but it's the eternal moment when the sin of the world is forgiven. Luke chapter 23, verse 33. When they came to the place that is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. All forgiveness, all forgiveness of, of sin, past and future, flows from this moment. Jesus, we are told, is the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before the eternal logo said, let there be light, in Genesis 1. It was foreordained that the Logos would become the Lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Sin, this missing the mark, this overstepping the line, uh, sin did not come as a surprise to God. Before there was the first let there be, there was in the mind of the Trinity the knowledge that sin would come and that sin would be forgiven and that it would be forgiven at that moment. All forgiveness, past, those that lived prior to Christ, those that live after Christ, all forgiveness of sin flows from right there, from that moment. Before there was a single sin that God had determined that sin would be forgiven. Now, if we're not careful though, we'll drift into some wrong thinking. Theology is how we think and what we say about God, and we want to do our best. What you don't want to think is this, that in this moment, the Son is acting as an agent of change upon the Father. One of the things that we know about God is that God is immutable. It's a fancy word. It means unchangeable. But I like the word immutable because it, it, it reminds you of mutation. You know, we're all kind of nervous about, you know, what if this COVID thing mutates, right? And then it's a little bit different and then the vaccines have to, what if it changes a little bit? God is the one thing we can be sure does not mutate. God does not change. If you think you perceive God changing, it's because you're in motion, not the other. I had that 
that incident, Perry and I were at the grocery store, and I was, I was just starting to back out. And all of a sudden, I, I slammed on the brakes because I felt like I was like hurtling backwards. But what had happened was the car next to me had started moving forward, and it messed with my perception, and I thought I was flying backwards, but I wasn't. If you think that God is changing, God is not changing you're the one that's in motion, okay? It's, it's the rising of the sun, but the sun doesn't really rise, the earth rotates. We don't say earth turn, we say sunrise, but it's really earth turn. God does not change. And at the cross, the sun is not acting as an agent of change. The sun does not change the unchangeable father, but what does the father do? I mean, what does the Son do? Reveals the Father. So, when the Son, upon the cross, prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what to do. Is the Father's heart then changed? Okay. Okay. And I've always been kind of disgusted with these sinners, but for your sake, because of you, because you're at, that changes my heart, and I will, no, 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 no. What does Jesus say over and over and over? I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what I hear the Father say. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? Because that's the will of the Father. That's the heart of the Father. That's the word of the Father. And Jesus is expressing what is already there. So at the cross... Because there, there's some really, oh, it happens over time. It happened over, it started about a thousand years ago and then mutated into another form 500 years ago. Um, an, an idea crept into theology in, in the West, it never happened in the East, that Jesus is in effect saving us from God. No, <laughs> Jesus is not saving us from God. Jesus is revealing God as Savior. So we have this, we have this painting of, of the scene of the crucifixion. And there's, you know, there's Christ upon the cross. There's the two revolutionaries is really what they are. And as revolutionaries participating in banditry that were caught and crucified, that was supposed to be Barabbas there, by the way the ringleader of the revolutionaries that mounted the insurrection in Jerusalem, and they're being crucified for it, but Barabbas goes free. But So we have Jesus, we have those that are crucified, we have soldiers gambling, we have grieving women, we have, we have an angel present, people just passing by, people kind of ignoring the whole thing. Where is God in this? Who do we associate God with? The cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God endures in Christ as God forgives. If you're looking for God at Calvary, you look at Jesus upon the cross. In terms of forgiveness, this is what the Apostle Paul says happened on Good Friday. 
God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God was not apart from Christ being reconciled to the world. No, God was in Christ reconciling the world, bringing the world to himself, embracing the world in love and grace and forgiveness. God was not being appeased at the cross. God was suffering at the cross. This is the eternal moment set in eternity when the sin of the world is freely forgiven. And if we're going to talk about what does this mean and then we want to talk about forgiveness, it means many other things. And it's been one of the, one of the deficiencies in theology of the cross is that we've tried to reduce the cross to one thing. And we made it all about one thing, and it's about so much. I mean, one Sunday I will talk about how this is the beauty that saves the world. I will talk about how this is the axis of love expressed in forgiveness that refounds the world. I'll talk about how the principalities and powers are shamed. I'll talk about how it's the enduring model of all discipleship. I'll talk about how it's the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure and other things. But if you're going to talk about forgiveness, it is where the sin of the world is forgiven. And this is probably... Uh, the best way I know as to how to explain it, that on Good Friday, the sin of the world coalesces into a singularity. It becomes one thing. I mean, from the first sin, from the transgression in the garden, to the last sin that will ever be sinned in the age of sin. Whatever that is, and whenever that is, all of it comes together. It comes together as a single thing. And is, we could say it this way the world sends its sins into Jesus. The world sends its sins, it's the world, it's sinned into Jesus with violence. So you see the wounds. That sin might be one thing and forgiven in mass. Forgiven. That in the act of forgiveness, when Christ reveals that God is a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, the sin of the world is forgiven in that moment. Apostle Paul, a few verses after he talks about God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, he says this, he says that, that Christ was made to be sin, was made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the expression of God's covenant faithfulness. As the sin of the world becomes one thing and is sinned into Jesus, we can say Jesus becomes sin. In other words, if you look at this, if you, you know, what does this mean? Well, it means that humanity has so missed the mark, sin, harmartia, that when God came 
among us, when our creator came to us as one of us, that happened. That is sin. That, what does sin look like? It looks like that, that's sin. But here's the thing. It isn't, when you look at that, you're not just seeing sin. I'll, we'll talk about this in more in weeks to come. Because how many of you, you came in here this morning, you saw that, and at some point the thought went through your mind, that's beautiful. Anybody think that? Well, of course. And you're, I mean, there's a reason why it hangs in the Louvre. And it's a strange thing that it's, it's also beautiful. Because even though, yes, this is the sin of the world, coalesced into a hideous singularity, and it's ugly, it's that, but it's also the love of God. And so what we have is the sin of the world colliding with the love of God. Jesus is the grace of God, but when grace is pierced, it bleeds pardon. So the sin of the world and the love of God, I, I want to say it this way, the, on Good Friday, the sin of the world and the love of God become one thing. Here's the, here's the infinite love of God. Here's the sin of the world. All the sins that have ever, have, ever have been sinned or will be sinned all coalesce in this hideous thing and they, on Good Friday at the cross, they become one thing. And something's got to give. Only one is going to prevail. Is it, is it, I mean, what is the greater? Is it human sin or is it divine love? Well, we are those that believe that the testimony of the resurrection, among the many things that it is, it's more than just one thing, is that though at the cross... Human sin collides with divine love and mercy. In the end, love and mercy win. So the sin of the world is sinned into Jesus. Jesus absorbs it. He takes it all. He takes it all. I mean, it's all on him to the point that he becomes that. But he doesn't cease to be God either. And so now human sin and divinity become one thing. And in death, Christ goes down into the realm of the dead, Hades, Sheol, hell, and leaves guilt and blame and sin, transgression there. And is raised on the third day saying, peace be with you. Why? Because it's all forgiven. So at this moment, I mean, just everything, everything, all the, all the selfishness, all the pride, all the greed, all the wrath, all the abuse, all the violence becomes that. That it might be forgiven, and then the invitation is given to enter into a new world that lives beyond that. The blood of Jesus saves us because it's the blood of God. It's human blood, but it's also divine blood because Jesus is fully human and fully God. So the, the blood of Jesus is the blood of God. And God is love. And the blood of Jesus was spilled at Golgotha. 
And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know that story? Cain killed Abel. The firstborn becomes the first murderer and slays his brother. Cain kills Abel. And how does God become aware of this? Because he hears the voice of Abel's blood crying out from the ground. The end is that Cain becomes an exile. Cain, Cain can't come back home. Cain is not executed, but he is exiled. He's condemned to wander the earth as an exiled man, and he's got a mark upon him that nobody should mess with him, but he is an exile. But the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And among the things that the blood of Jesus says, among the things that the blood of Jesus says is, come home. You can come home now. You don't have to be in exile anymore. It's all forgiven. Come home. Come home. I'm going to reconcile you with your brother. I'm going to set all things right. It's forgiven. You can come home. You don't have to be in exile anymore because of the blood of Jesus. So what does this mean for you? For you. Not just theologically, abstractly. What does it mean for you? It means that sin does not have to keep you away from God. You don't have to be in exile. You can come home and not be afraid. Prodigal son, prodigal daughter, come home. And all you'll find is God running to you and putting his arms around you. Why? Because, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. Oh, hallelujah. See, theology is how we think and what we say about God. And we get wrong ideas. This, the divine posture toward you is this. I mean, if, if someone comes toward you like this, they're offering you embrace. They want to, they, it's, it, it's a gesture that says, I want to embrace you because I love you. I want to welcome you. I want to console you. I want to help you. I want to be your friend. This is the divine posture. The posture is not that of Zeus ready to hurl a thunderbolt, waiting for you to make a mistake. That little trap we saw last night, Perry. I made a mistake. Depart from me. Now, the the posture of God is not Zeus ready to hurl a thunderbolt. It's not the pointing finger of accusation. Some of you feel deeply, even if you don't think it really, you feel deeply that God is pointing his finger of accusation at you. No, that's the Satan. One of the, one of the great things to do in theology is to get God and the devil in proper places and not confuse them. To confuse the devil for God is bad theology. And if you think God is accusing you, pointing the finger, you sinner, you wicked sinner, you've made the theological error of confusing the devil for God. 
the Hasatan, the Satan is the accuser. God is the one whose arms are outstretched, inviting you to, you don't have to be in exile. You don't have to be afraid of me. You don't have to, you don't have to stay on the run. Come home. Come home. That's what it means. It means there's nothing keeping you from God and from his love and from his healing and from his salvation. Your sin is forgiven. I could even say, I could even say it like this. This will sound bold. Um, Your sins were forgiven before you were born. Your sins were forgiven before you were born. But that doesn't mean that grace is cheap. Does that look cheap? There's nothing cheap there. It's not cheap, but it is accomplished. It's not cheap, but it is finished. We enter the experience of forgiveness, though, through honesty, not through apathy. It's it's not, you know, sitting around playing dice at the foot of the cross. Oh, yeah, I heard a sermon. I guess my sins are... It's not that. It's... We enter into the experience. I'm using the word experience. We enter into the experience of forgiveness through honesty, not through apathy. And so that's why we confess, I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And then we experience forgiveness. We need to be honest about our lives. And find where we are complicit. It could have been me who drove the nails in your hand, rooted as I am in this violent land. You know, we have to find where where we're complicit. But again, you don't But don't lose sight that that God is not accusing you. He's not hurling a thunderbolt. As you're honest about your own selfishness, your own sin, your own seeking not first the kingdom of God but your own petty kingdom, your own sin of not loving God with all your heart but loving yourself supremely, the sin of not loving your neighbor as yourself but wanting to use your neighbor, as you recognize that, then you say, I turn from it. Help me. I turn from it. I know I'll have to turn from it again tomorrow probably, but I am turning from it. And the experience of forgiveness, you're already forgiven, but the experience of forgiveness comes as we confess our sins. If we confess our sins, he is faithful because he's faithful and just. The one who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all iniquity. Your sins are already forgiven. In one sense, the sin of the world has already been forgiven, but we have to come home. It doesn't do us any good if, we're, if we just remain in exile and we say, I, I can't come home because I'm a sinner. I can't come home because I'm afraid of God. I can't come home because I don't want to stop living in the pig pen. I can't come home because I want to stay. No, that doesn't do us any we, we are The father, I mean, in the parable of the prodigal son, does the father forgive the son when he comes home? No, he, the, there was never a moment the father had anything but unconditional love for his son. The father never changes in the parable because it's a picture of God and God doesn't change. All the changing happens 
with the Son, but not with the Father. Your sins are forgiven, but it's through repentance. So repentance, you know, is, is a change of mind that leads in a change of direction. And we come home. And there's no fear of coming home. What's going to await you is an embrace and a robe and a ring and a barbecue. Hallelujah. But the, during Lent, what we're doing is we're, we're actually examining ourselves and saying, you know, there's this part of my life that's been living with the swine. And that I'm going to turn around and come back home. And I'm going to come home and say, Father, I've sinned against you. But about the moment I start saying I'm not worthy to be your son, the Father's going to just embrace me and say, shh. We're not talking about worthy or unworthy. We're talking about you're my son. And all is forgiven. What does this mean? It means many things. But it's the moment, the eternal moment of forgiveness. And what does this mean for you? It means you don't have to stay in exile. You can come home. Amen. Stand with me. First, let's confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now together, corporately, let's repent and enter into the experience of forgiveness. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And this tells us that God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy so I want you to know in the name of Jesus Christ your sins are forgiven forgiven you're not in exile anymore come home there's a party waiting for you and this is the table not of the church but of the Lord it is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more so come you who have much faith and you who have little you who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. The body of Christ broken for you.
the blood of Christ shed for you.